Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell. It's great to be back with you all again after a few weeks off. We are here for our first off-season talk. We'll be looking at the Senior Bowl in our first segment before looking at a story that came out right after the end of the regular season that we held off on a bit because we think it'll be, you know, just as good now. And then our last two segments, we're going to take a quick look at the coaching carousel. We've already seen, uh, what is it, almost a dozen schools change hands at the top. And uh, so we're going to look at the best and worst coaching hires so far this offseason. Before we dive into it, though, John, it's uh, I haven't talked to you since uh, we spoke on the night when Alabama won the national championship. So I got to ask, now that the glow is off a little bit, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, man. Like it's, it's been uh, nice to kind of kick back and relax these first couple of weeks of the official off season of college football, obviously college football never rests. There's always crazy things going on, but just kind of taking a little bit of time to decompress and, and everything like that. Obviously the joy of winning a championship lasts for, for a while, but I've been kind of full fledged into basketball at this point. So kind of got that on the, on the brain, but always, Always excited to jump on here and talk some college football because it's something we follow year-round, obviously. Yeah, the cycle never really stops. And, you know, one of the things, obviously, that that came up over the past week was the Senior Bowl. You know, for a lot of these guys, it's their last chance competing before they finally get a payday. And uh, if, if for all of you who listen to the podcast, obviously, we are big fans of, of these guys getting a payday as quickly as they can. But these guys are seniors getting their paydays. You know, this is the, the last big chance, the, the chance to make a name for yourself. And, you know, they divided it into the national and the American teams. And honestly, the enduring memory of this for me, John, is not anything that happened on the field but more on the sidelines and match it watching Matt Rule kind of make an ass of himself for the most part uh all I have to say to all of you out there listening is do not use your mask like Matt Rule and so many other coaches use it if you're gonna scream at somebody that's when you need your mask on the most so just keep it on and, and feel free to scream. I, I get it. I, I need to scream at least five times a day, it seems, you know. But that's digressing from the senior bowl. Obviously, the spotlight, you know, was and sh- as it should be on the players. And, you know, I, I think obviously the big thing about this is always can you boost your draft stock? So who do you think boosted their draft stock the most here, John? Yeah, I one of my favorite things um, about the Senior Bowl is watching NFL scouts and writers fall in love with these college players that we've been screaming about for two or three straight years. Um, so one of my favorite things, like them being, wow, this guy's really good. And it's like, yeah, we could have told you this guy's really good. Like one of the guys who I saw so much about all week was uh, Boogie Basham from Wake Forest, the defensive end. I mean, we know that guy's a good football player. Michael Carter, the running back from North Carolina, we saw him, you know, near the end of the regular season, just tear up Miami's defense as he did to so many others throughout the year. And everybody's, all the NFL people just kind of being blown away that this is a good football player. When it's like, we, we are all aware that he is a good football player. You need to have, this is why it's important if you watch the NFL to have college football fan friends, because we can tell you a lot about these guys. It would have helped the Chicago Bears four years ago if they had had any um, friends or associates who had ever watched college football before when they took Mitch Trubisky, when all of us were screaming for them to take Deshaun Watson instead, or even Patrick Mahomes. But I think Mahomes was a lesser known commodity coming out of college than, you know, the guy who had just won the national championship a couple months prior um, and had two years in a row really dominated against a Nick Saban coach defense. So, you know, 
that's all I'll say about NFL scouts is you need to watch more college football because some of these guys were were obvious. Uh, you know, selfishly, one of the guys I was so excited to see do well was Mac Jones because uh, he's always just kind of had this stigma that he's not as good um, as so many other guys that, you know, he's got all the talent around him at Alabama, like having good players to throw the ball to suddenly makes you not a great quarterback. I don't understand that. I feel like Trevor Lawrence has never had that knock on him and he's had elite talent around him at Clemson the last three seasons. Justin Fields had elite talent around him at Ohio state, but you know, I was disappointed that Mac didn't get to play in the game because he suffered an ankle injury one of the last days of practice. But by all accounts, he was the best quarterback in mobile probably solidified his standing as a, as a first round pick. So really excited for him. Uh, he's definitely one of the guys. Michael Carter, like I said, had a great week. He's going to be a guy that's probably looking at potentially being a second or third round pick when I think a lot of people are looking at him as a, a potentially day three guy. Uh, Quincy Roche, I had seen, um, uh, edge rusher from Miami, had seen most of the year being mocked like in day three range, fourth and fifth round, which just blew me away because that's a guy who's just on tape looks fantastic every time you see him. So he had an Excellent week, unsurprisingly, at the Senior Bowl, and is now being looked at as a potential second or third round pick. So take that guy on day two if you have the opportunity, because I think he's going to have a very productive career. And it was also cool to see some of the guys that you know didn't have college football seasons this year, Zach, get an opportunity to to finally play um, again. Like South Dakota State's Cade Johnson, the slot receiver for for them. <clears throat> the Missouri Valley Conference postponed its season, so he didn't get the opportunity to play in the fall, but he's heading to the draft. Uh, and I think he's a guy who's probably going to be a day three pick that could end up being a legitimate starter in the NFL right away. I think he's that dynamic as a slot player. Um, so really cool for him to have that stage. And that's what makes a senior bowl great is when you're able to have the opportunity for for guys like that who are really relative unknowns uh, to people who don't follow the sport super closely. Um, and, you know, even for me, I, I was aware of his existence, but I didn't know he was as dynamic of a playmaker as he was. Cause it's always tough to, to judge uh, players on that level when they're not playing against the guys that they'll typically be playing against in the NFL. Um, and, and he clearly proved that he belongs. So he was one of my favorite players to watch all week. I thought he was fantastic. So I love seeing guys like that finally get their chance on the big stage and making the most of it. Cause that's a, you go to mobile, that's a place you can really up your stock and really make yourself a lot of money. It's a really good opportunity. Um, uh, you know, the, the game is sometimes pretty sloppy when they actually play, but I mean, these guys have had a week to practice together. It's not going to be the most beautiful football. You get a lot better read on the guys in practice and how they do in one-on-one drills and stuff. So, and then, you know, you're kind of looking to see if what they do backs up the tape you've seen on them. Like, you know, what you see on tape, does that translate to what you see in person? So he, he's definitely one of those guys. So several guys that really made themselves a lot of money, several guys who were kind of disappointing, but I don't want to disparage any guys uh, on the podcast this week and that. So I know it's, it's a difficult spot to be put in because you've got no prep work, uh, particularly for the guys uh, that, you know, the Alabama guys, the Ohio State guys, Clemson, Notre Dame, that, you know, played football so recently. And some of the guys who even played in later bowl games, trying to acclimate yourself into that. So it's an excellent opportunity. It's one of my favorite um, weeks of the year uh, getting to, to, to watch that. Um, I got to get there at some point because I currently live about an hour from Mobile, but this didn't really feel like the year to to make uh, travel plans um, to to go to the Senior Bowl. No, I think honestly it was probably the smartest choice to to stay where you were and and just follow it <laughs> from nearby. One other you know standout that I really enjoyed as somebody who follows the Pac-12 was Demetric Felton. Uh, you know, in Chip Kelly's offense, it, there's just something about what's been happening at UCLA. And and Felton is one of those guys who was kind of a, a jack of all trades for them. But I, you know, I, I think he's always kind of stood out more as a running back, but here he showed himself more as a wide receiver and, and showed that he can, 
can fill in that skill set as well. And I think especially the way the NFL is starting to shift its scheming on offense to take advantage of these sorts of guys that are coming out of college, he, he fits exactly into that type of mold where he can catch balls out of the backfield. He can, he can stand in as a runner. Uh, he can give you those different looks that I think makes him a valuable asset on a second or third day flyer. So, yeah, a guy that's going to be a special teams contributor too for whatever team he ends up going to. So that's the kind of guy that's super valuable when you're looking at guys you're looking at late day two, early day three range. You're looking for a guy who, you know, might be able to contribute offensively or defensively, but also someone you can use on special teams. Because, you know, the NFL, different than college, in that there's only 53 roster spots in the NFL for the regular season. So, you know, you're not going to, if you're looking to trim your roster down, those last couple people, it could come down to, hey, can this guy play special teams? Yeah, you know, these are the kind of guys who can make or break their their future earnings just in games like the Senior Bowl. So I, I think, you know, honestly, more than a bowl game, you know, performance, something like this can really flip the script on a player in in large part because like you said with somebody like a Mac Jones you don't just have the team that you have around you you know it's not just star-studded obviously you're playing with other really talented guys who are looking to go to the NFL but this is also showing how you can work with a new batch of people and how you how quickly you can adapt to that which ultimately is what the NFL all comes down to in the end. Any last words that you want to throw out there on the senior bowl before we take our first break, John? Uh, I saw someone mention on Twitter a couple days ago, might've even been, well, you know, recording Monday, posting Wednesday. So over the weekend, sometimes someone posted that the team names for the senior bowl, since it's the Reese's senior bowl should be team chocolate and team peanut butter. And I haven't been able to get that out of my mind. It does seem like a marketing failure for Reese's and the Senior Bowl, that that's not the team names. Oh my, I'm not going to get that out of my head either now. Um, <laughs> I, I might need to take a quick step away and try to regather my thoughts after that one, everybody. So let's do that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about a story that I think is always kind of hovering there in the back of everybody's mind, realignment. So stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. We just finished talking about the Senior Bowl and the fact that we don't have Team Chocolate and Team Peanut Butter. I I thought I was going to get that out of my head during the break, but it did not. So let's move on. Because this is a story that came up originally on December 21st, but I think it's something that could potentially reverberate long term. So BoiseDev.com and IdahoPress.com released a batch of emails and documents from Boise State under the Public Records Act. And they, they basically came across emails between Boise State and the American Athletic Conference. Uh, this was when Brian Harson was still the coach there. And, you know, he may very well come up in the next couple of segments as one of those coaches who moved schools. But, you know, basically the story comes down to this is Boise State has been fed up with their spot in the Mountain West for years. It, effectively, since they moved from the WAC to the Mountain West, it seems like they never got the arrangement that they were expecting when the, the Mountain West was at its heyday with you know, Utah and TCU and BYU making the conference nationally relevant year after year. So Boise State wants to move. And 
you know, it really raised two questions for me immediately, John, that I want to tease out here just in terms of thinking about this part of the story. There are other veins of realignment that I want to look at as well. But just thinking about Boise State, first of all, is Boise State still a national power at this point in terms of group of five teams? And, you know, in the broader scope, thinking about Boise State vis-a-vis, you know, American Athletic Conference teams, even emergent Sunbelt teams that we've seen, what would be the best group of five realignment moves to strengthen the case for a college football playoff berth for one of these leagues? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting. It's one of the things uh, when Brian Harson left Boise State for the Auburn job, one of the things I wrote about on the on the website was that, you know, Boise State was a little bit worse off now after Harson left than they were when Chris Peterson left to take the Washington job. Uh, they hadn't you know, they still won a lot of games. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they went 69 and 19 over his six or seven years at Boise State, whatever it was. That's an impressive run. Don't get me wrong. Like, I don't want to act like they weren't really good. Uh, but, you know, the best finish that Harson had in the AP poll um, after his first year there where they finished 16th was 22nd. Um, and they finished unranked in three of his last six seasons, which isn't something that happened uh, very often under Chris Peterson. Um, so I, I do wonder, uh, particularly their performance against the power five competition really fell. Chris Peterson was 10 and three against power five competition, um, in 13 contests while he was at Boise state, Brian Harson went seven and six. So that's a three game swing, uh, downwards. And obviously, like I said, Boise state had plenty of success under Harson, but they weren't as relevant nationally, uh, during his tenure as they had been under Peterson. They were a legit powerhouse under Chris Peterson. They had jumped into the upper echelon of college football teams. They were a top 10 program under Chris Peterson. And they've, you know, they've taken a slide back since Harson got there. They've never, you know, in the college football playoff eras, I don't believe they've even made a New Year's Six bowl game, have they? They made it that first year in 2014 when right. they beat out Marshall for that spot. Okay. So they made it the first year, haven't been since. And that's a pretty big drought for Boise. They would have been one of the teams you'd expect to be there. And we can talk all day about the how non-inclusive the, the New Year's Six has been for a group of five teams. And it certainly has. They may have had teams that deserve to get there. But the fact that they haven't gotten over that hump to be the top group of five team um, any since then has been kind of jarring. And it'll be interesting. I know bringing in Andy Avalos is – seemingly on the surface, a pretty good hire. I mean, he's been an excellent defensive coordinator during his career. He's obviously got roots uh, at Boise. So it'd be interesting to see if he can get them back towards that. Uh, and in terms of where they are, I, I mean, the Mountain West, in terms of the hierarchy of the, of the group of five, you got to think the American Athletic Conference is sitting at the top. But the Sun Belt has really risen in the last few years, uh, particularly with Appalachian State joining uh, they've been, you know, one of the top teams, but Coastal Carolina was excellent last year. Louisiana had a great team last year, and the Mountain West is kind of teetering after it looked like they were just a couple years ago getting right there with the American Athletic Conference with Boise and with Fresno State, Utah State, uh, Hawaii had some really good teams too, so they've kind of drizzled down a little bit. So, I mean, it, it could be in the best interest of teams like Boise, of teams like Central Florida, if Boise may be left the Mountain West joined the American Athletic Conference. And maybe if the American could poach an Appalachian state or a Louisiana or somebody like that to add in as well, then maybe you are talking about a potential power six instead of a power five. But it's all about the money when it comes down to it, Zach. And I just don't know uh, revenue-wise if that's going to be something that makes sense. But, I mean, it would be certainly be interesting and would make for a, a hell of a conference if teams like Boise – Louisiana and Appalachian State suddenly jumped over and joined the American Athletic Conference. See, I, I agree with you. I was also thinking, you know, Coastal Carolina is young, but they're ascendant. And they're just a couple of hours down the road from East Carolina University. You could easily build up a, a divisional rivalry right there without much fanfare or 
you know, uh, prodding. I think you can very easily spark something there. So, yeah, you know, I, I think you're probably right at this point. The, the AAC is the conference that if any team is going to get into the college football playoff, it's going to be that league. But they do need to reinforce their numbers and, you know, build up another couple of teams that can be consistent top 25 teams. Whether or not Boise State can be that team at this point, you know, whether it would be better if you're trying to get a team from out West to poach like a BYU, who knows, but uh, obviously it'd be easier to get an independent in terms of detangling all the other conference affiliations. But Boise State obviously seems to want out. They see what the Mountain West, you know, the Mountain West was never what they you know, wanted it to be as soon as they got there. They always wanted into the Mountain West when the Mountain West was the preeminent BCS buster. It, it's it's not that league anymore. It, it's just not. And so, yeah, I, I think at this point, the way we've seen things shift, the American is it's kind of the American or bust in terms of getting somebody into a playoff spot. Yeah, I think hanging on to coaches is a big thing too. You know, Cincinnati being able to still hang on to Luke Fickle has been massive. Coastal Carolina locking up Jamie Chadwell for a, you know, a seven-year contract that could be easily bought out, obviously. So, but them hanging on to Chadwell uh, has been huge. And then, you know, Boise State and Central Florida are both breaking in new coaches next season. So, I mean, I, I think that's important too, to maintain that success. And, you know, like you said, the Mountain West isn't what it was. You know, Utah left for the Pac-12. TCU got into the to the Big 12, and that really affected the standing of the of the conference. So I, I do wonder, too, if maybe in terms of realignment, if a Power 5 league will be looking to poach. Because uh, the one thing that will scare the Power 5 the most, the Power 5 commissioners the most, is the group of five raising up and trying to get their slice of the pie. So maybe the Pac-12 jumps in and tries to poach Boise in, and we have a whole different conversation. Yeah, there's weird things with the Pac-12 in terms of, you know, it's a lot like the Big Ten in terms of the Association of American Universities and having that academic and R1 research university affiliation that I, I think is holding them off more than anything because whether or not the coaches and the athletic directors and whatnot want to acknowledge it, they are still attached to a university. And in those two conferences, especially the Big Ten and the Pac-12, you have college presidents and faculty reps who still very much acknowledge the history upon which that was built and the academic standing of the institutions they've brought in over time. So I'm skeptical that those two leagues would drive it necessarily, but one I do think is definitely going to play a role in this wherever the next realignment happens is the ACC. So we were just talking about the AAC, let's switch our acronyms just a, a tiny bit, talk about the Atlantic Coast, because I think having Notre Dame in the league this season showed how that can be a mutually beneficial pairing. Obviously, Notre Dame fans out there listening, I, I await every nasty post on Twitter you can throw at me forever suggesting that the Irish would be better as an not an independent. But the fact is they made the you know, they made the college football playoff this year with a loss. You are never going to do that as an independent Notre Dame. You must win every game in a given season to make it to the college football playoff as an independent if you're Notre Dame. You can get there with a loss out of the ACC as they proved this year. They didn't even have to win the conference championship game to get in with a loss. So they're 
I mean, you. I'd love to hear if you have an argument otherwise, John, but I think they're better off in, in the ACC than as an independent. Yeah, I, I, I honestly agree uh, with that, as, especially, I mean, you know, it's worked out for their basketball program as well. So, I mean, they've already got ties to leagues. So I, I, I enjoyed seeing Notre Dame in the ACC this year. It was honestly, it, it really upped the, it was great for the ACC too, because up the level of competition, because they got two teams in the playoff this year, specifically because Clemson and Notre Dame played each other twice, split those games and won all their other games. So, and I mean, if you look at, I was just looking at this the other day, I was looking at Clemson's schedule for next year, and I don't want to be too down on the ACC, but it's a joke. I mean, the Clemson schedule next season is an absolute, they open with Georgia, and I don't think they're going to play another ranked team the rest of the season. I mean, it's really a joke, and being able to potentially add a game against Notre Dame would not just be beneficial for Notre Dame, the ACC, it'd be beneficial for Clemson as well. Because if they lose that season opener to Georgia, it's going to be a long climb back up the standings with who they have and what their strength of schedule is going to look like at the end of the season. So like you said, the the beauty of playing in a league is you can afford one loss because you might get the opportunity to play for the conference title. And a one-loss conference champion is typically going to have a shot at being in the college football playoff. It's typically what you end up seeing with a one loss conference champion is that's that team's typically going to get in uh, depending on all the other factors. Obviously sometimes you have weird years where three of the four teams are undefeated heading into the college football playoff, but that's getting rarer and rarer. I think it's tough to go undefeated uh, as is particularly when you play in a league where you're playing nothing but league opponents week in and week out teams that know your tendencies better than others teams that have played you so many times coaches that have seen you so many times and just the grind of a, of a league schedule, no matter the league, playing week in and week out against league opponents who all have a ton of talent, even if they're not utilizing that talent as well as they could be, all are extremely talented teams. I don't really foresee Notre Dame making that jump anytime soon. I think they relish their independent status. They relish their TV contracts. So I do imagine they'll be independent for a while longer. But the longer they go now without a college football playoff berth, the more you got to wonder um, if they look back at the year that they were in a conference and made the college football playoff if they end up thinking that. So if you see a bit of a, a Notre Dame drought in the coming years, we could definitely see that changing. Yeah, I mean, I understand where Notre Dame would be coming from in terms of cherishing that independence. The fact that they've played a nationwide schedule of longstanding rivals, you know, from from Navy to USC, if you will, you know, sea to shining sea. And at the same time, they're leaving so much money on the table year after year, even with the ACC lagging behind other Power Five conferences in terms of their payout. Notre Dame makes only like, I think, what was it I calculated? Only something like 70% of what they would be as a full ACC member. And as soon as they become a full ACC member, they can immediately renegotiate those contracts. And that number shoots up closer to the 40 million range than the 30 million range a year. So, you know, they're leaving the money on the table. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. But say Notre Dame gets in, right? The one other question I really wanted to throw out there is, who else should the ACC pursue to get to 16? because I don't think they would stop at 15. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of geographical uh, stuff, it, to me, it, it would make sense if it was West Virginia, just in terms of where they're sitting. And that could pull up some very interesting things of what the Big 12 does to replace West Virginia. Maybe they're a landing spot for a team like Boise State. Uh, geographically, that wouldn't be too out there. It would certainly be closer than freaking West Virginia. <laughs> so uh, West Virginia makes a ton of sense to me because they're right there. They've got the a footprint but a lot of times when you see what conferences are doing in realignment trying to get that into different markets I think is is something that's important to those leagues like that's the reason Texas A&M ended up in the SEC because the SEC was able to tap into the Texas market so you know it all depends uh money wise what makes sense but West Virginia makes a lot of sense to me even South Carolina makes a lot of sense to me, maybe trying to poach. And how big of a story would that be for the ACC to poach an SEC school if they were able to do that? I doubt they would be able to in terms of the money. But obviously, South Carolina's already got a natural rivalry 
with Clemson. So getting them in would make sense. But West Virginia is probably the team that just makes the most sense. But I always think of these things in a geographical sense and not a monetary sense. Uh, and I know that's not how these things tend to go. Yeah, you know, I, I think on one hand, it's really interesting thinking about that with uh, with West Virginia because they definitely fit into that sort of old Big East footprint, definitely, where so many of, you know, teams like Syracuse fit into that same regard. Um, a team like Louisville fits in that. Uh, and Notre Dame fits right into that as well because they used to be a Big East affiliate member as well. So, yeah, I, I think it really does make a lot of sense to see how that might go in. And you're absolutely right. Then what does that do for these other leagues? Interestingly, um, I, I was looking at uh, maps and... Boise is about 400 miles further from the league offices, the Big 12 league offices in Irving than Morgantown, um, which just which just speaks to the American map and how expansive things are out west. But, you know, I think if they poach away a West Virginia, for instance, which, you know, restores some some natural rivalries in there, you have West Virginia Pitt again, for instance. Yep. Um, I mean, restoring the backyard brawl is reason alone to do that. Um, but yeah, you know, then the Big 12 is really scrambling. And then, you know, they become one of those leagues that's definitely looking to expand. Um, I think a Boise State and a BYU maybe in a package deal looks like a, a much more attractive thing if they're down to nine teams. Um, but who else do you think the Big 12 might go after in that? Houston. Houston. Houston makes a lot of sense. That's a huge market. Um, and I think that's something that Houston's definitely wanting to push for. I mean, they ponied up to get Dana Holgerson away from West Virginia. I think they're probably hoping to make the jump to a Power 5 league at some point. Obviously, the Big 12 makes the most sense. I just want them to get to 12 teams. I want to make the Big 12 12 again. That's what I want, just in terms of making it make sense. Do you think they might you know, I, as I mentioned, Boise's a, a far way away. And, you know, we laugh about Morgantown already, but that's actually closer than Boise. So if, if they go for something like Houston, do you think they try to stay close and stay in metro areas and almost, rep, I mean, not quite replicate the Southwest Conference, but, ha, you know, get Houston in there? maybe an SMU. And then if you're looking at Metro centers, do you look at a team like perhaps Tulane, you know, the former SEC member Tulane? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely interesting. You get into tapping into New Orleans and stuff like that with, with Tulane. So, you know, I, I wonder in terms of fan base, if Tulane has a big enough one uh, to make that make sense. And I really don't think so, because that whole state is purple and gold these days for LSU. So, I, I, you know, Houston makes a lot of sense to me. SMU definitely would make sense. They've definitely started to turn uh, a corner. And, and maybe they don't look geographically either. Maybe they start looking further west to try to tap into the California market. Uh, maybe they look further east and try to tap into more of the, the southern market uh, and stuff like that. Because we've seen that geography doesn't always dictate what's going to happen. And that's how West Virginia ended up in the Big 12 as it is. So I, I think there's definitely opportunities. Money talks. Um, and that's going to be what really makes sense. But it's all it takes is one domino. And once the first domino falls, man, it, it's going to be chaotic. We've been talking for over a decade now about the potential for super conferences that never really materialized. But, you know, it's it's one move away from potentially happening. Oh, we you know if you know if the ACC or the Big Ten made that the SEC is not going to sit idly by and let someone else be called a super conference and they're not one of them. Yeah, we've been talking about this since the the early nineties. I mean, once the College Football Association broke the the NCAA cartel, all bets were off. And but you know. Um, one last one I want to throw out there for the Big 12 because you talk about it is uh, Orlando is even closer to Dallas than Morgantown. So, yeah, there you go. That'd be interesting too. Now, get them hey. in the Florida market, and that's a huge market too, and something that's been untapped by the conference. 
yeah, I think that, you know, if we're talking about realistically what they're trying to do for the best interest of their, their already existing members, that's probably it. Absolutely. So let's take a quick break, John. When we come back, we're going to get into the coaching carousel full bore. So uh, be sure to grab yourself a drink, have yourself a quick bathroom break, do whatever it is you need to do, everybody. We got some great stuff still to talk about. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're going to get into the coaching carousel now because we've seen more hands than we might have expected or more teams change hands than we might have expected in a pandemic-stricken season. First of all, before we get into, you know, best, worst, all of that jazz, John, I just have to ask you, are you surprised that we've seen what is it 10 teams 12 teams fire coaches at this point you know I I really thought it would be unlikely that we'd see a bunch I'm not surprised by the number I guess I'm surprised that some of the names and some of the schools that ended up making changes uh when it kind of felt like status quo would have probably been okay there like Auburn for instance Texas uh was another one those were the two biggest that really surprised me based on the sheer amount of money they had to pay in buyouts for, um, for Gus Malzahn. Oh, excuse me. And I, I just, I it was kind of blown away that they would do that, but it's bigger schools like that are always going to find the money. You know, Tom Herman's buyout's not going to scare away Texas. Gus Malzahn's buyout wasn't going to scare away the yellow fella in, in, in Alabama, the big Auburn booster. Um, sorry, I know that doesn't make any sense to anybody listening to this podcast or my podcast co-host Zach doesn't has not seen the the yellow the yellow Alabama yellow hammer commercials uh, all the time growing up. But still, um, somebody out there gets it. But yeah, I, that was what I think surprised me the most was the amount of buyout money teams are willing to pay. It's still a bit down, I think, in the carousel because ten to twelve coaching changes really isn't that many. I would think in a normal year, we'd see up to 20 or so pretty frequently, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we see anywhere between 12 and usually 16 in a given okay. season. So we're right in. A yeah, so pretty, av- so pretty average. We're on the low end, but we're, yeah, we're in a, 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 an average season. Yeah. It's also not over. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we... Um, I mean, we still need to see UCF hire somebody new, at least, uh, you know, unless they hire somebody between Monday night and Wednesday morning when this goes live. I would be surprised, too, if UCF didn't poach a sitting head coach that then opens another job up. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the carousel is by no means done. Given that, though, who do you think was, you know, the best coaching hire of the off season so far. You know, one of the weirder things this off season is there hasn't been like that many splashy kind of hires. You know what I mean? It hasn't felt like that. Like Texas was the biggest job obviously out there and they poached an offensive coordinator out of Alabama. Obviously Steve Sarkisian's not your typical offensive coordinator. He's a former head coach at, you know, both Washington and USC. So he's got that experience, but you would think with Texas, somebody that was either a sitting head coach or a guy like Urban Meyer, for instance, who, you know, is now going to be the Jacksonville Jaguars head coach. That's the kind of name you'd be more expecting there. However, I do love that hire for Texas because I think Sarkisian is a very good coach. I expect that he's going to have a lot of success there. I love his ability as a play caller. Uh, He was a great offensive coordinator at Alabama. He's great at developing quarterbacks. I think they nailed the defensive coordinator hire poaching Washington's defensive coordinator away, uh, I think was pretty massive because that's, I think the big concern that people would have is is he's going to be able to get the most out of that defense. He's obviously going to be able to get talent as much as he wants at Texas. He's assembled a great staff. 
Uh, so I really like that hire. Maybe one of the under-the-radar hires I liked a lot, too, though, Zach, was Kane Womack at South Alabama. He was Indiana's defensive coordinator last year. Uh, did just an excellent job. He's only 33 years old, so he'll be um, – I believe he'll be the youngest FBS coach next season, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so then pulling Kane Womack in, he's a former South Alabama assistant. I think that's huge. I think that program has a chance to really be on the upswing in the group of five. They're in a really good area in Mobile, uh, pretty fertile recruiting grounds in that area. They should be able to get some top talent, and he's a really proven uh, player developer. So I really love that hire for South Alabama. Um, I, I I really enjoyed that one, Zach. What do you? What was the one that you saw that made the most sense to you? See, I had two that stuck out to me, and the first one is, uh, a, a you know, a guy getting another chance. I thought it was Butch Jones at Arkansas State. You know, I I think what's happened at Tennessee since he left, it, it sort of burnished what actually he was able to do at Tennessee and what is honestly a very dysfunctional environment at this point. Um, obviously he was fired after a four and six start there in 2017, but that was on the heels of back-to-back nine win seasons and finishing tied for second in the SEC East. So while he never got them over the hump there and it, you know, it really just might not have been a good institutional fit. He's a damn good head coach. We saw that in his time at both central Michigan and Cincinnati and, you know, after a couple of years of not being in the head coaching ranks, I think he's definitely somebody that merited another chance. Um, the other one that I really liked is um, one that will actually be familiar to you as an Alabama fan. It's Charles Huff at Marshall. And while I hate to see Doc Holliday given the boot in Huntington after going 85 and 54, um, you know, somebody who was a really loyal alumnus and didn't go chasing after other jobs when the opportunities came up. Um, the fact the fact is, is he was released at the end of his contract. It was it was the same that they didn't renew. They didn't, you know, they decided they wanted to go in a different direction, but they didn't have to pay out a lot of money you know as you just said that was the big thing is how much money do you have to pay out and they didn't hear so you know i i think for who they landed i really like them landing huff first and foremost i really like seeing another black head coach in college football there are way too few uh black coaches that get the chance to move up from position coach to coordinator and then to move from coordinator all the way up to head coach. So it's great to see Huff get that opportunity. But, and jumping know, a step, which you never see with a with a black coach. I mean, he was just the running backs coach at Alabama. You see white coaches get opportunities as a position coach, the head coach all the time. So I definitely, I agree. And, you know, I mean, former HBCU player, he worked his way up the HBCU ranks before he got these opportunities at bigger schools. And yeah, the last two years working as the running backs coach and as an associate head coach under Nick Saban. I think the fact that he had that label attached and that he was able to work as closely as he was with Saban on some of these things, people are looking for that next, you know, big name in the tree. And I think in terms of somebody getting that chance, I love seeing that it's a black man that got that chance finally, rather than, I mean let's face it, a Sarkeesian getting, you know, another chance. I'm not going to knock the Sarkeesian, you know, higher. He certainly wasn't my favorite of the hires. I don't think he was the worst of the coaching hires by any means. Um, You know, on one hand, you could say he went just 34 and 29 at Washington, but anybody who knows the Pac-12 environment knows that Washington was cratered when he got there. Oh, and 12 the year before he got there. Exactly. So I've had that argument with so many people I know too, who looked at his record at Washington and it's like, y'all don't remember what Washington was before Sarkeesian got there. I remember him going seven and five there in like year two or three and everybody being like, 
holy shit, he won seven games at Washington. That's why he got the USC job. He was going eight and four at a school that was terrible for a long time. I mean, he set them up for what ended up being the Chris Peterson years. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it seems like he's gotten his demons behind him in terms of his, you know, relationship with alcohol. And I, I'm glad to see him get another chance, but I, I'm also, like you said, it wasn't the flashy hire you would normally expect yeah. Texas to have. So it, it could be, uh, you know, surprisingly good hire for them. It could be a situation where it doesn't necessarily work out. But I think in terms of if you're not going to get a, somebody like an Urban Meyer, to have somebody with previous head coaching experience who had had the humility to work through you know, what they needed to work through before taking another chance. Good on him, and I wish him nothing but the best. That's what a lot of coaching searches end up looking like, too. A lot of people always, when it's a big job, think, oh, we're going to get a Nick Saban, we're going to get an Urban Meyer. A lot of times you get a guy like Steve Sarkisian or a a Brian Harzen. You get a retreat hire, or you get a guy who's a hotshot coordinator or a top-tier group of five coach. That's typically what's going to happen because a lot of coaches, once they get a power five job, aren't going to jump job to job. They're comfortable where they are. So, I mean, it's it's pretty typical. It's funny you mentioned Marshall, though. I like Charles Huff a lot. I'm excited he's got the opportunity. I do not like them moving on from Doc Holliday. That feels to me like one of those, the grass isn't always greener on the other side kind of moves because he had a ton of success. I mean, Marshall what started seven and oh eight and oh this year before kind of faltering down the stretch they were at one time a team we were talking about as a potential group of five leader so i was stunned that they didn't renew his contract i think huff is an exceptional hire when they got into the carousel and an off the beat kind of hire a guy you wouldn't normally think would be a top contender for that job he's a excellent recruiter He's a, a great running back coach. He developed a ton of great running backs, not just at Alabama, but at Mississippi State before that. So I'm ex- I'm stoked for him to get that opportunity. I do not like Marshall moving on from Holiday, though. That just feels like one of those moves that they could eventually regret. It feels like maybe too much involvement by university uh, officials and stuff to that program. And I, and I hope that they are hands off and let Huff do what he's got to do because that's where programs start to struggle is when – too many outsiders start trying to put their hands in and and run the program and not let the coach do what he needs to do. Well, and the thing that floored me most is the people that were trying to push out Holiday in large part were trying to get back Bob Pruitt to lead the team a second time. You know, he obviously, he led them through the transition to the, to the FBS back when it was 1A, um, on the heels of winning multiple uh, 1AA national championships. But he's 77 years old. There's no reason Bob Pruitt comes back to coach you. So, you know, I'm with you. If I was going to say what was the worst firing or what was the worst moving on of any of those, I would say Doc Holliday. Um even though they got to do it for free. (laughs) And you know what it reminded me of immediately was Florida International firing Mario Cristobal, letting him go and bringing in Ron Turner, who then went 10 and 30 in 40 games there. Huff, I think, is a better coach than Ron Turner is, so I think they got that part right. But letting go of Mario Cristobal, I mean, that's obviously turned out to have been a pretty big mistake by FIU. Uh, Butch Davis has obviously done uh, a much better job than Ron Turner had done, but you know, Cristobal's obviously now the head coach at Oregon. So, I mean, he's obviously yeah. gone on to have a ton of success. He's probably happy with how things have turned out. But that's the first thing that came to my mind when Marshall did that. I was like, oh, my God, this is FIU letting go of Mario Cristobal all over again. Yeah, it's it, it's a real risk on their part. It, you know, it's high risk. It could potentially be high reward, but it could also explode in their face really, really hard.
Shifting to the other side of the ledger, John, just quickly, who do you think was the worst of these coaching hires? Because while we, while we weren't willing to denigrate any of the players in the senior bowl, I have no problem talking <laughs> poorly about guys who make millions of dollars a year. You know, it obviously remains to be seen. I think Shane Beamer at South Carolina is a pretty questionable move for them. Um, a, a guy, um, you know, who hasn't really had a lot of experience, even as a coordinator, getting an opportunity at uh, a Power 5 school like South Carolina will be interesting. But to me, in terms of fit, the one that made just the least amount of sense to me, and, you know, it remains to be seen how that's going to go in the future was Auburn hiring Brian Harson. I don't mean that as as saying anything negative about Brian Harson. I think he's a fine football coach, but he's a West Coast guy, very little roots in the South. His ability to recruit in the South worries me. And if you can't recruit in the SEC, you are dead. I mean, it is the toughest conference to recruit in. You're going against guys like Nick Saban. Even in your own division, you're talking about recruiting against Nick Saban. You're talking about recruiting against Lane Kiffin against Ed Orgeron, against Jimbo Fisher. I mean, these are elite recruiters in your own division. That's not even counting the Kirby Smarts, the Dan Mullins uh, across the way. So that's the one that just really surprised me the most. And I think Harson would have the chance to be really successful at the right program. I don't see Auburn as the right program for him. Um, obviously, you can't fault a guy for making that move. Auburn does have the potential to be a top-tier program you know, God willing, they won't be uh, as a, as an Alabama fan, I hope. But, you know, to me, that's the one that made the least amount of sense. I don't feel like that's any kind of upgrade over Gus Malzahn. I feel like the best Harson would be able to do at Auburn is replicate the success that Malzahn had. And Auburn paid $21 million for the potential duplication of what Malzahn had did uh, just to get rid of Malzahn and then whatever they're paying uh, in total for Brian Harson, So that's the one that made the least amount of sense to me. I just don't know if he's going to be able to recruit at a level that is going to bring in the talent to make Auburn a real contender. And that's obviously what Auburn wants is they want to be a national championship contender year in and year out. And that's, that's honestly, it's an unrealistic goal. And I don't say that to be a hater. I say that just based on history. Auburn's not a national title contender year on year out. Can they win it? Can you win a national championship at Auburn? Absolutely, you can win a national championship in Auburn. Are you going to, year in and year out, be a contender for a national championship at Auburn? Absolutely not. And that's not a knock on Malzahn or any other coach at Auburn. It's hard to be a national championship contender year in and year out. There's only a handful of schools who are able to do that. So I just feel like they're going to regret moving on. I think Malzahn was a perfectly fine head coach. He had plenty of success there. You know, he won the West three different times, which no one else had been able to do that over Saban's period at Alabama. Um, I believe during Malzahn's tenure, no other coach won it more than once other than Nick. So uh, I, I feel like that was a very questionable move. I just don't see Harson having the, the roots in the conference and in the area to be able to recruit at the level. I, I don't know that a lot of the guys Auburn were targeting recruiting even know who Brian Harson is. And I don't mean that as a negative towards Boise State, but these are high school kids in the South. Have they heard of who Boise State's head coach is? I mean, chances are they probably haven't. So it, he's, it's going to take a lot of work, and he's not dealing with a patient administration or a patient fan base to be able to do that. I think it's going to take time for him to be able to build something there. They've had a lot of roster attrition already this offseason in the transfer portal and going pro. I don't think he's going to be able to get Bo Nix to the level they want Bo Nix to get. That'll be the real interesting thing because he's a legacy kid at Auburn. He's the guy Auburn wants. But in reality, it probably makes sense for him to hit the transfer portal or the JUCO level and bring in a quarterback. And I know that's something a lot of the fans and the people in the with the team don't want to hear because Bo Nix is Patrick Nix's son, but we've seen two years of that kid. I just don't think he's going to be the guy who leads Auburn where they want to go. No, I, I, I think that's all fair. And honestly, Brian Harson is one of the people that was on my short list for one of those worst tires. And it's for the exact same reasons. It, it, it's fit. And, you know, in terms of, you know, Chris Peterson's name was known among Southern kids a decade ago. Oh, yeah. 
but that's because he was leading Boise State to top 10 finishes every year. Brian Harson didn't do that. You know, going 69 and 19 is impressive for just about any coach at any level, but it's not going to get your name on the national radar at a school like Boise State. It's going to eternally get you compared with the guy who had them at an even higher level before that. And, you know, he did have that one year before he took over at Boise State at Arkansas State. He had a couple of years at Texas, but yeah, he's never recruited in Southeastern Conference territory and against Southeastern Conference teams for the same players. Uh, So yeah, I think that's a really questionable one. But the worst coaching hires that I saw were a couple of retreads that I kind of just raised my eyebrows and said, why? Uh, The first one, Terry Bowden at Louisiana Monroe. (laughs) Um, And and, I mean, the Bowdens are a dynasty. The Bowden name is always going to carry some sway, but Terry Bowden is 64 years old and his last job was at Akron and you know where he, and he got fired <laughs> where he was 35 and 52 in seven seasons at a program that is effectively the Louisiana Monroe of the Mac and you know so why a retread there like why are you not trying something different um you know obviously I think Louisiana Monroe thinks it's the end of the 20th century and they've got a different Bowden and Rich Rodriguez trying to fire things up down I was about to ask if you saw that they hired Rich Rodriguez as the offensive coordinator it it, honestly it's like Tommy Bowden and Rich Rodriguez did amazing things with Sean King in 1998 everybody this would have made more sense if they hired Rich Rod as the head coach yeah Exactly. Um, so yeah, Terry Bowden, I have no clue why there. And then Brett Bielema. And this isn't just a salty Badgers fan wondering what if, if he had stayed there. Like, honestly, he's, he last coached in the Big Ten nearly a decade ago. He left um, for Arkansas and he went 29 and 34 at Arkansas over five years. And Illinois is basically the Arkansas of the Big Ten West. Like, he doesn't have the same institutional advantages in Champaign as he did in Madison. Uh, you know, he doesn't have a system that's been built up and carried over, uh, you know, for a generation at this point, you know, starting with Barry Alvarez changing the culture there for at Camp Randall. He, he basically has to be the Barry Alvarez of this program rather than being the guy who was able to take the reins from Barry Alvarez and keep that that engine running. So, again, why? Um, I think Bielema probably has a better chance than Bowden of making some kind of noise, but both of those guys, I, I was not inspired at all. If you're going to move on, you're moving on to them. <laughs> I kind of I kind of like the Bielema hire at Illinois. I'm going to say that quietly just in case it blows up, uh, which it very well could, I will say. But I kind of like it. I, I get what you're saying about Wisconsin. I mean, you know, every coach it feels like at Wisconsin has success because of the culture of that program Barry Alvarez has built over time. So I, I think Arkansas is a pretty tough job and a very tough division uh, where you're competing, like I said, against Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Texas A&M, year in and year out is really difficult. Not that the Big Ten West isn't a good division. It is. It doesn't have the top-tier talent of that division, though. So I kind of like it because I kind of think that he could, you know, build the trenches with Illinois and maybe have a little more success with that kind of football uh, in the Big Ten than he was able to in the SEC Though I will contend that with the way college football is moving, it's probably moving away from those ground and pound teams that Bielema likes to build so much. So it could very well be a thing where he wins eight games in three years and is fired. Uh, But the Louisiana Monroe hire is definitely one. That would have been my second choice um, to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up because that one's just hilarious to me. I I have no idea how that's going to go. If it's any kind of successful, I'll be stunned. 
I'd be lying if I'm not fascinated to see what happens at La Monroe with with Terry Bowden back and with Rich Rodriguez as the offensive quarter. And like I said, that that hire, if they would have hired Rich Rodriguez as a head coach, I'm like, that's a that's a pretty good move for them. Like Rich Rod, you know, has had success before. So yeah, that one that one's very questionable to me. Uh Jed Fish at Arizona is also pretty questionable to me. Obviously it was time to move on from Sumlin, but they were talking about potentially going after Ken Niamatololo, and that would have made so much more sense. That's one of those jobs that they've talked about for years, one that he would potentially leave Navy for. And at a school like Arizona, I've been fascinated to see the triple option run in the Pac-12, too, just to see how that would work. So I I hate the Jed Fish hire specifically because they didn't bring in Ken, Ken Niamatololo. However, I will say I've turned a little bit on the Fish hire because alumni – of Arizona seem to be completely buying in. Teddy Bruschi uh, just joined in as a some kind of defensive consultant, I believe, for the Wildcats. So getting somebody like that, one of your more notable uh, former Wildcats, a part of the program, I think is important. So maybe his vision is, you know, and we're not in these pitch meetings either, obviously. So we never know what someone's looking at and what they want to do. So that one I've turned on just because of that more. But, yeah, I, I think Auburn's move was questionable. You can definitely question what Illinois did with Bielema, though I will say I kind of like Brett Bielema still. I don't even know why I kind of like Brett Bielema. It, something is wrong with me, clearly. Um, and then, obviously, um, Louisiana Monroe being just a complete – that was probably the most shocking hire of the coaching carousel when I saw Terry Bowden's name come across. Yeah, that's a name I never – I expected him to just be retired and enjoying his money, you know, why come back at 64 for a beating in the Sunbelt Conference after you just got done spending – how many years was it? Freaking seven years getting in the, in the MAC. And your treat chief rival is as good as they've probably ever been right now with Billy Napier on the sideline. So that makes it that much more difficult. Yeah. So just, you know, I did just to put the Bielema situation in perspective for you. Uh, the last time that Illinois uh, won the big 10 was 2001, actually probably sooner than many people would have expected, but Given all our conversation today, guess who the head coach was then? At Illinois? Yeah. Ron Zook? It was Ron Turner. Ron Turner, shit. Ron Zook was after that, right? Yeah. Ron Zook was at Florida yeah. during. Yeah, but this was when Ron Turner still gave a damn about coaching before his FIU. You see how everything comes full circle on the podcast, everybody? Exactly. I, I, I just had to bring that last part up because that cracked me up. No, I'm glad you did. I was thinking the last good Illinois team I remember, I think Ron Zook was the coach, and that was when they had, what, uh, Juice Williams. Um, And uh, I can't think of the running back that was just ridiculous on that team, too. But he played Rashad Mendenhall, maybe, Yeah. on that team. Uh, Ridiculously good Illinois team then. I believe Ron Zook was the coach at that point, post-Florida, maybe. He he was, yeah. That was the last time that Illinois was in the Rose Bowl. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yep. Like, 04? 05? 07. Jesus Christ. That is sooner than I would have thought. Yeah, kind of wild, huh? That makes sense, though. I don't know why, like, Ron Zook's last year, I believe, was 04 at Florida, because Urban Myers was 05 first year at Florida. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm glad Zach is here to always be able to remember dates. It's a blessing and a curse, isn't it, Zach? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I don't know why I remember this many. Let's remember some coaches, as they would say, at Defector, right? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, any final thoughts you want to throw out there this week, John, before we, we we call it good for the week? Nah, it was it was fun talking about all this. I think this was a really fun episode. We're glad to be back uh, after a couple week break uh, post championship game. So, looking forward to a lot of off season full of topics and hopefully less doom and gloom this off season than we had all of last off season. I'm honestly, yeah, that's that's the last thing I want to say is this is probably the least like stress inducing podcast that I've had 
like that we've recorded in a long time because talking about the season was stressful as it went on because you you never knew what was actually going to be happening by the next Saturday and who might be ill and who might be out and how long it might impact them because it, it certainly did have variable effects and some rather adverse ones for students. So I, I, I've never been more thankful for an off season. I think in all the years that I've watched college football and uh, I'll, I'll be damned if we don't have as much fun as possible talking during this off season. So thank you all for listening. I hope you have as much fun as we do chatting about football if you have anything you want to hear us yak about on uh, on the Saturday Blitz podcast during this off season, shoot us a line at Twitter, JL Mitchell ninety three, Z Bagalki, either one of us. Uh, please do send anything and everything our way. Uh, no idea is too crazy. We might just talk about it one of these weeks. Until then, though, thanks for listening. We'll be here with you on Wednesdays with the Saturday Blitz podcast.